We turn now to Exodus chapter 20. We continue in our series, Ten Words on the Law of God. This morning we will look at the sixth word, the value of life. Our key words this morning for our worshipers in training are life, death, and murder. Perhaps you recall April 20th, 1999, Littleton, Colorado. The morning of the attack, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold shot a brief farewell video in Eric's basement. Eric directed. Say it now, he said. Hey, Mom, Dylan said, I, I got to go. It's about a half an hour till judgment day. I just wanted to apologize to you guys for anything that this might instigate. Just know I'm going to a better place. I don't like life too much, and I know I'll be happy wherever I go, so I'm gone. Goodbye. Eric handed Dylan the camera. Yeah, everyone I love, I'm really sorry about all this. I know my mom and dad will... Be just like, just shocked beyond belief. I'm sorry. All right, I I can't help it. Dylan interrupted from behind the camera. It's what we had to do, he said. Eric and Dylan spent just five minutes firing outside. They killed two people and advanced into the school. For five minutes, they fended off deputies. They shot Dave Sanders and roamed the halls looking for targets. They began tossing pipe bombs over the railing down into the commons, which appeared deserted. It wasn't. Several students, hiding under tables, made a run for it and fled out of the cafeteria doors. They all made it out safely. Others stayed put. Along the way, the boys passed the library windows and they ignored all the kids that were huddled there. And then they circled back. That room offered the highest concentration of fodder that they had seen. They found 56 people inside. They killed 10. They injured 12. The remaining 44 were easy pickings, but Eric and Dylan got bored. They walked out. Seven and a half minutes later, at 11.36 a.m., 17 minutes into the attack. And aside from themselves and the cops, they would not shoot at another human again. But Eric still had a few thrills left to savor. Killing had turned tedious, but he was still up for an explosion, the biggest explosion of his life. He could still perform his primary feat blow up the school, and burn down the rubble. So he headed down the staircase into the commons. Dylan flowed closely behind. Eric stopped on the landing halfway down. He knelt and placed his rifle barrel on the railing to improve his accuracy. The backpacks scattered everywhere, but Eric knew which duffel bag was his. He fired The boys were easily within the blast area, and they were well aware of that fact. Twenty-five minutes into the massacre, Eric had made his second attempt to initiate the main event and his first attempt at suicide. He failed again. 
Eric gave up. He walked directly up to the bomb, and Dylan behind him, Dylan tried to fiddle with it, and that failed too. Other students were visible under the tables. The killers ignored them. Lots of drinks left on the tables, and they tipped back a few. Today, the world's going to come to an end, one of them say. Today's the day we all die. They left the cafeteria after two and a half minutes, and on the way out, Dylan tossed a Molotov cocktail at the big bombs. One last attempt to set them off, and another failure. The boys drifted about the school, upstairs, down again. They surveyed the damage. It was pathetic. The Molotov started a small fire that burned in a duffel bag off Uh, burned the duffel bag off of one of the bombs and ignited some of the, the fuel strapped to it, but the propane tank was impervious. The fire set off the sprinkler system across the room. The boys had been going for an inferno. Instead, they caused a flood. So at noon, they returned to the library. Why end it there? because Act 3 was about to commence. The car bombs were set to blow. Ambulances had massed around Dylan's BMW as planned. A triage unit was busy nearby. Limbs would fill the air just like Eric's drawings. The library windows were set up like skyboxes so they could choose the library not just because of the carnage that was there already, but for a better view of what was yet to come. The boys inspected the army that surrounded them outside. Paramedics were just then breaching the perimeter to rescue. Eric opened fire. Dylan did the same. Two deputies shot back, mostly suppressive fire. The medics gave up and the boys quit. This was their only fire on humans during the 22-minute quiet period. It was a classic attempt at suicide by cop heroically dying in battle, but at a time, place, and manner of their own choosing. And that failed too. They apparently waited for their cars to explode, weathered a final disappointment, and then called it a day. Eric turned his back on the mess. He retreated to the southwest corner, one of the few unspoiled areas in the room. Dylan joined him there. It was a cozy spot near the windows, nestled between walls and bookshelves on three sides with a mountain view. One body lay nearby. The boys sat down on the floor facing out the windows. Eric propped himself against a bookshelf, just a shoulder width to the right of Dylan and a few feet behind, watching his back. And then they ended it. The massacre was over, and so were their lives. I grew up about 20 minutes away from Columbine High School and had several acquaintances from the school at that time. So I remember this morning very clearly. Something I don't think I'll ever forget. And if you remember that day, the nation was stunned as news stories flooded. And the facts of the massacre began to unfold. Fifteen people killed mercilessly. 25 injured. How could two young men commit such a horrible act? How could it have been stopped? What could have been done? 
is only one of a few times in American history where the majority of a nation's people were saying with one voice, something here is terribly wrong. Now, of course, many were quick to offer their solutions, gun control, metal detectors, a ban on certain types of music and books and movies. There were only a few voices in the wilderness that addressed the reality that was behind it all. The massacre at Columbine High School, just like the shootings at Virginia Tech, the terrorist attacks on 9-11, the Oklahoma City bombing, the Holocaust of Nazi Germany, and any other murderous atrocity in the history of the world was a glimpse inside to the the reality of a human heart that has so suppressed the truth of God's righteous law as to devalue human life so low that it no longer holds value whatsoever. It's a despising of the very image of God. Of all the Ten Commandments, the one that has nearly universal acceptance among all cultures in the world is the Sixth Commandment. Almost unanimously, the world does not approve of murder. It is so contrary to the law of nature that literally every known culture has some sort of prohibition against it. And while I've given a very dramatic illustration of God's law being completely disregarded, as we look at the sixth commandment this morning, we find that perhaps no commandment is more blatantly or brutally violated by the societies of the world as this one. Read with me in Genesis chapter 20 and verse 13. Very simply, the Lord commands us, You shall not murder. It's the shortest of the commandments. The original Hebrew is only two words. Lo ratzak. Don't kill. Now the Hebrew language has at least eight different words that are used for killing. So it's important to recognize what is specifically meant in this usage. Ratzak. It's never used in the legal realm or in reference to military action. And that's very important here. There are other Hebrew words for the word kill that deal with the execution by a death sentence or for the kind of killing that takes place when a soldier is carrying out his duties in the nation's military in combat. Additionally, the Hebrew ratzak does not deal with hunting or killing animals or anything of that nature. So the most helpful interpretation of verse 13 is what we see in the English Standard Version. You shall not murder. So murder is what is up for consideration in this commandment this morning. The premeditated taking of an innocent life. The deliberate killing of a personal enemy. But there's still a difficulty here because that doesn't cover everything that the word itself implies. It's to be associated with any form whatsoever of wrongful death, voluntary manslaughter, which is the willful premeditated murder, but it also involves involuntary manslaughter. Some accidental deaths, although unintentional, are considered murderous nonetheless. 
which is why God's law includes legal sanctions. Deuteronomy 4.42 says, For anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally without being at enmity with him in the past. There is a legal sanction for this. So the Baptist Catechism is helpful here to determine what the Sixth Commandment forbids. It says the Sixth Commandment absolutely forbids the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tendeth thereunto. So you see, this also includes suicide, includes euthanasia, it includes abortion. So what we're dealing with in the Sixth Commandment is unlawful murder. Negatively, the Sixth Commandment insists that we not kill another person by thought, word, gesture, or speech, much much less in actual physical action. But as we've looked at with all of the other commandments so far, there is also a positive element to this commandment. And perhaps this is what's most glaring in terms of our disobedience to the Sixth Commandment. Positively, this this commandment requires us to do everything in our power to see to the health and welfare of our neighbor. Martin Luther, commenting on this commandment, wrote, this commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbor, or though he has had the opportunity, fails to prevent, protect, and save him from suffering bodily harm or injury. If you send a person away naked when you could clothe him, you have let him freeze to death. If you see anyone suffer hunger and do not feed him, You have let him starve. Likewise, if you see anyone condemned to death or in similar peril and do not save him, although you know ways and means to do so, you have killed him. It will do you no good to plead that you did not contribute to his death by word or deed, for you have withheld your love from him and robbed him of the service by which his life might have been saved. Therefore, God rightly calls all persons murderers who do not offer counsel and aid to men in need and in peril of body and life. He will pass a most terrible sentence upon them in the day of judgment as Christ himself declares, I was hungry and thirsty and you gave me no food or drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Along these lines, the Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, Is it enough then, if we do not kill our neighbor in any of these ways? The answer, of course, is no. For when God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, He requires us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward Him, to prevent injury to Him as much as we can, and also to do good to our enemies. Now, as we consider this commandment, we have to understand that Christians always have, always have had an understanding that the Bible does not 
forbids certain types of killing in their certain context. Namely, self-defense in preservation of life and in the protection of one's family, capital punishment, and the just execution of war. Now, on each of these issues alone, we could preach an entire series. But I want for us on these points to simply remember each of these instances is horrible. None of them should be taken lightly, but with great care. And they should each be very rare occurrences. In other words, our desire should not be to kill in self-defense if it's unnecessary. We should not delight in the death of someone who has received capital punishment even though it is just. And we should be very thoughtful and careful when supporting the execution of war in accordance with the just war theory. Philip Ryken explains, The Bible teaches that it is not unlawful to kill enemies in wartime provided that the war is just. Of course, the justice of a war needs to be considered carefully. Christians have long believed that a war is just only if it is waged by a legitimate government for a worthy cause of defense with force proportional to the attack against men who are soldiers, not civilians, when all other means of resolution have failed. As for the death penalty... The Bible teaches that when capital punishment is justly administered by the governing authorities, to kill a guilty offender is not murder, but justice. It's taught in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Paul told the Romans who were under the imperial authority of of that day that the government does not bear the sword in vain because the one who governs is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So although it is always wrong in every circumstance to avenge ourselves, not protect, but avenge, the government has a God-given responsibility. They're responsible for just and swift vengeance on those who have taken another's life. So we have to ask the question, why is it that God forbids certain types of killing but permits certain others? And the the answer lies in the positive element of the sixth commandment, namely that God is concerned with the preservation of life. Now, perhaps it seems odd that the preservation of life is tied to specific instances when taking someone's life is biblically justified. But sometimes it's necessary to take a life in order to save another. In self-defense, in just war, these are certainly the cases. As for capital punishment, execution of a murderer stops him from killing again, deters other would-be murderers from doing the same, and it's a matter of justice. Genesis 9.6 tells us, Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. 
So you see, it's precisely because life is precious, because we are created in the image of God, that someone who takes it unlawfully must be put to death. Now, the issue at hand, of course, is that all men, godly men and ungodly men alike, bear within them the image of God. Genesis 1 and 2 remind us that God created us in His image. John Calvin wrote, our neighbor bears the image of God. To use him, abuse or misuse him, is to do violence to the person of God who images himself in every human soul. Now, providentially today, all across the country, churches are observing this day as the sanctity of human life Sunday. I didn't intentionally plan to be in the Sixth Commandment on this day. It just happened according to God's timing. But that's exactly what we're looking at today. The sanctity of human life. The Sixth Commandment preserves the sanctity of human life. And it also preserves God's sovereignty over life and death. Jesus Christ is the Lord of life. He is the author and inventor of life He is its ruler. He is its sustainer. And since He is the giver of life, it is also His prerogative to take it and to do so in His own time and in His own way. So the sovereignty of God is always at stake in matters of life and death. So to unlawfully end another person's life is to violate God's sovereignty over life and death. And it's also to rob God of His glory. God has given us life and breath so that we might live for His praise. The psalmist wrote, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. So we see life is not given for its own sake. Life is given, our purpose is given that we would bring glory to God and for this reason it may not be taken away unlawfully. But it is to the delight of the enemy that our culture takes murder very lightly. It's seldom that murder is accompanied with the shock with the outcry and the condemnation of evil that comes with an event like the massacre at Columbine High School. Consider how common it is that we read in the newspaper or watch on the nightly news and to hear another story of someone's murder as if it's just news. Today's stock market prices, the circus is in town, someone's life was ended, the weather report the sports. It's just sandwiched in there. It makes us numb to the reality of what has actually happened. And to Satan's joy, it's rare that the murder of another image bearer of God shakes the conscience of a nation. And of course, not all forms of murder are violent. Sometimes death carries a clipboard and wears a lab coat. In a recent book called Culture of Death, the author wrote, A small but influential group of philosophers and healthcare policy makers 
actively seek to persuade our culture that killing is beneficent. Suicide is rational. Natural death is undignified. And caring properly and compassionately for people who are elderly, prematurely born, disabled, despairing, or dying is a burden that wastes emotional and financial resources. This kind of thinking is a direct assault on the biblical view of personhood. And of course, as we consider this, I'd be remiss not to address the horrendous atrocity of abortion. Since 1973, when Roe v. Wade was settled in the United States Supreme Court, there have been over 53 million abortions in the United States alone. At the current rate, there are 1.2 million abortions in America every single year. And at the current rate, one in three women will have an abortion. Worldwide, approximately 115,000 human beings are being aborted every single day. Let me put that into perspective. That's the attack of 9-11 happening 30 times every single day. That's That's the death toll from Hurricane Katrina happening 60 times every single day. And by the admission of Planned Parenthood, the world's largest abortion provider in the world, 93% of all abortions involve healthy mothers with healthy babies. Every single year, Planned Parenthood receives $360 million from the tax revenue of the United States government through grants and earmarks. Let's put this into perspective. There are few people in the world who will deny the fact that the systematic murder of six million Jewish people during the Holocaust under the reign of Adolf Hitler in Germany was evil and senseless and damnable. Almost unanimously, the people of the world will include Adolf Hitler in their top choices of the world's most evil people. And yet, in our country, we have legally funded through our tax dollars and killed nearly nine times the number of human beings, image bearers of God, than that of Nazi Germany during the Holocaust. But where's the outrage? How have we gotten so far down the road of legalized murder with a scalpel and a vacuum hose that it's no longer an issue of moral truth, but rather an issue of political debate that never gets anywhere because men and women are more concerned about their Washington careers than they are about the lives of millions of children. Many of our neighbors openly celebrate the genocide of the unborn in order to purchase themselves the ability to maintain a sexually promiscuous lifestyle without the so-called inconvenience of caring for another human life. And the grandest of all human efforts to eradicate a people group are infinitesimal compared 
to the atrocity of abortion that happens in our own neighborhood. Christians have always believed that an unborn child is a person made in the very image and likeness of God. John Calvin wrote, "The, The child, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. And it is a monstrous crime to rob it of its life, which it has not yet begun to enjoy. Christians have always believed this because the Bible has always taught it. The psalmist wrote, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. A child in the womb is a living human being created in the image of God. And to kill it is a clear violation of the law of God. But I want to be very clear about something else here. Jesus did not mainly come to stop abortions in the world. He came mainly to die for abortion-committing sinners. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now listen, with the statistics that I've just shared, I know you're out there. Either you've had an abortion, or you've helped fund one. Someone in here. I want you to listen to me. There is one way to know God as your father. And it's the same for the people at Planned Parenthood as it is at the people here at Ephesus Church. Come to Jesus. Have you sinned? Yeah. Have you broken God's law? Yes. But is Jesus Christ greater than our sin and has he taken on the penalty of that sin that we deserve because in the depths of our depravity, we all hated him. We all rebelled against His goodness, His grace, His mercy, and His love. Every single one of us was standing in the crowd shouting, Crucify Him! While He looked on us with compassion and said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Jesus has suffered so that you don't have to. The Father poured out His wrath that was stored up for us, for our past, for our present, and for our future sins. And He's poured it all out on the Son of God while we were still His enemies. And Jesus declared, it is finished. And so we look to Jesus for our redemption. You'll never rid yourself on your own of the stain of your sin. But if you're in Christ, if you repent of your sin and believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the stain of your sin is washed as white as snow. That's good news. Because your just reward for breaking God's law is eternal damnation in hell. But if you are in Christ, you've been rescued. You've been rescued.
Now, something else we need to recognize is that all of this means that as Christians, we also have a duty to oppose euthanasia, the killing of those who are suffering or along advanced in age, assisted suicide. And what is true of the unborn is true of all people of the world the young and the hopeless, the the elderly and the infirm, the diseased and the disabled. We are all made in the image and likeness of God. Every life is precious. No life can be discarded. All must be preserved. God alone is the Lord of life, and He alone has the right to determine when when comes the time for someone to die. Now, of course, this does not come without its own ethical dilemmas in our cultural context. Although we always have a duty to provide basic nourishment to a person by whatever means is possible, we do not always have the duty to provide extraordinary measures such as artificial respiration. There's a legitimate moral distinction between killing someone and allowing someone who is terminally ill to die naturally. In other words, there's a difference between terminating life, which is never permissible, and terminating treatment, which can be a way of turning life, and thus also death, back over to God. But of course, any such decision is not easy. The lines of that are very easily blurred. So our vigilance and our prayer in this difficult circumstance is of vital importance. Many of us will be faced with those decisions. Christians also have a duty to oppose suicide. God has not given us the right to kill ourselves. It is to take lordship over our own selves. We must remember we are not our own. We were bought with a price. Suicide is never an option. As I say that very quickly, I want to answer the question that inevitably comes up in a discussion about suicide. Is suicide proof that a person was not saved? Do those who commit suicide go directly to hell? I'm going to answer that by reminding us that we are justified by grace through faith alone. As humans in this fallen world, still dwelling in fallen flesh, we sin. And yet, as those who have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, Christ has paid the penalty for that sin. And so suicide is no more damning than any other sin nor is it any more removed from the grace of God in genuine salvation. It's tragic, it's heart-wrenching in every way, but it's not an automatic ticket to hell. And such a view makes very little of the atoning work of Christ on behalf of His beloved. But we must oppose it, we must reject it. We must recognize that it is not our life to take. Brothers and sisters, we've only scratched the surface. These are only a few signs that we are living in a culture of death. 
It's all around us. Such is the hatred stored up in the depravity of the human heart. People are killing one another all throughout the world as we speak. There's genocide attempts in Africa, religious warfare in the Middle East, ethnic violence in India, religious persecution in China and Pakistan. The level of bloodshed in our world is astonishing. Which brings me back to my initial question brought out through the story of Columbine. Why? How? How can it be? What is the real issue behind murder? If we're really going to uphold the sixth commandment, we're going to love our neighbor. We will love our enemies. We will love enemies of the gospel. And we are going to have to demonstrate that love in tangible ways, not only to brothers and sisters in the faith, but to aliens and strangers outside of the kingdom of God, even those who would just as soon see the church buried and gone. This is the true test. After all, Jesus asks, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? In other words, while the world seeks to divide into groups based upon special interests, skin color, political affiliation, socioeconomic status, to name a few, Jesus reminds us that our duty is to the world out there. We have an obligation to the world. Not with the sort of love that even the pagans have. But the kingdom of God commands a life of selflessness, a love toward others, regardless of who they are. We all think more highly of ourselves and our status than we ought. And we extend this to our family and then to whatever group it is we find ourselves in, and on and on. We've created rings of collective narcissism. We all do that. White, black, Asian, rich, poor, young, old, male, female. It's all a part of the fall of mankind that we form cliques. We not only share the comfort of things in common, but the evil of shared self-love. John Calvin wrote, Say that your enemy does not deserve even your least effort for his sake. But the image of God, which recommends him to you, is worthy of your giving yourself and all your possessions. Assuredly, there is but one way in which to achieve what is not merely difficult, but utterly against human nature. To love those who hate us, to repay their evil deeds with benefits, to return blessings for reproaches. It is that we remember not to consider men's evil intention, but to look upon the image of God in them. And so God calls us to understand the wider scope of this commandment. As Luther said, just because we did not mug our neighbor and leave him for dead does not mean that we loved the person. 
do not murder means much more than the negative keeping ourselves from physical violence. It also means that we look after the physical and spiritual well-being of our neighbor, a person who may even be an enemy. And like all of God's commandments, it's not primarily an issue of outward physical obedience, but rather it's the issue of one's heart. Jesus said, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is where the commandment gets really tough. I've never performed or funded an abortion or committed involuntary manslaughter. Although there is forgiveness in Christ for both. But just yesterday I struggled with unrighteous anger. I scoffed at those who disagreed with me and I grew impatient while one of my daughters was rambunctious while the other one cried. I gripped my teeth and drew a deep breath when the car in front of me slowed down because the speed I preferred to drive wasn't being met in the left lane. These aren't made-up examples. I get angry, and most of the time, unrighteously so. And it's not funny, it's sin. Anger is one of those respectable sins for us. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And after all, didn't you see what he just did to me? Didn't you hear what she said? Granted, not all anger is sin. Think of Jesus in the temple. It is possible to be angry and not sin. But honestly, that doesn't describe the vast majority of our anger. Sinful anger is anger directed at the wrong person, motivated by the wrong reasons or out of proportion to the actual offense. And sadly, this is a truer description of our anger. We take our rage out on other people, and we get upset for less than noble purposes, and we blow up over minor hurts and slight inconveniences in our life. We get grumpy with checkout clerks and waitresses. We snap at a service representative on the phone when we finally get through to them after being on hold for 30 minutes. We hold grudges against our spouse and we spew venom when sporting events don't go our way. We wish the worst of our enemies. And we cherish thoughts of revenge toward those who hurt us. But we say, no, I I don't have anger problems. (laughs) Whatever. People don't make us angry or make us lose our cool. We are angry. Anger, whatever else it might stir in us, comes from an angry heart. And this is no small problem. Paul writes in Ephesians 4 that anger gives opportunity to the devil. Hatred is considered murder and no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Strife, fits of anger, and dissensions are works of the flesh, and those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5. 
Now listen, I want people to hate injustice and despise falsehood. I want us to be angry about genocide and abortion and every other form of unjust murder. But I don't want a church full of mean, angry people. We can talk about murder and the sins of other people all day long. But if we don't love our neighbor, even those who get their politics and their theology all wrong, and those who annoy us to no end, if we don't love them, we've not been transformed by the Spirit of Jesus. We have not truly understood the sixth commandment of God. Are you a murderer? You sure are. You deserve hell. And if there's no way for murderers to be saved, there is no way for anyone to be saved because we are all in that same category. We all need a Savior. It's a good thing that Jesus kept God's law, including the law that says, do not murder. The Bible says that Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, although he had done no violence. It says further that he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. In other words, Jesus was peaceable even when he was provoked. And in this way, he offered perfect obedience to the sixth commandment of God. It's a good thing, too, that when Jesus died on the cross... The blood of murder that's on your hands and on mine was washed clean. We know this because he offered forgiveness to the very people who murdered him. There's an old song that asks, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? Yes, I was. And you were too. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the Apostle Peter preached in Jerusalem to the very same people who called for Christ to be crucified. He accused them of murder, of killing the one who came to be their Savior. And when they realized what they had done, they desperately wanted to know what they could do about it. And Peter told them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. There was a way for there, for your murderous sin to be forgiven. The very death that they were guilty of demanding, Christ's death on the cross, was the death that atoned for their sin. If you've been condemned by the sixth commandment this morning, there is hope for you too in the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're an abortion doctor or a mass murderer, or if you're prone to get angry, if there's someone you secretly resent, if there is murder in your heart, or if you've committed any other kind of murder in thought, word, or deed, then repent. Believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you've never done this, save a life. Save your own life by trusting in Jesus. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word, like a sharp sword, pierces bone and marrow. It brings a great weight into our hearts as we consider our own sinfulness, our need for redemption. And thank you for your word that pierces our hearts also with the gospel of grace that reminds us time and again that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That the very Christ who we put to death died on our behalf. Died that we might live. Help us all, Lord. Help us to understand your love, that we can show that love to our neighbors. Help us, Lord, to understand that our duty is to love and embrace, to joyfully suffer for the sake of others, that you might be glorified, and that the people of the world would hallow your name. Help us, Lord to examine our hearts, to repent of our anger, of our murderous thoughts, and to look to Jesus, the only one who has ever walked in perfection, the only one who was able to make a way for our salvation. Forgive us, Lord. Grant us peace. Grant us assurance. And grant us a greater understanding of our hope in Christ Jesus our Lord, who died for sinners like us, for murderers like us, that we might live forever. We love you and we praise you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.